So tonight we're going to continue uh, meditating on everything. The Eucharist, as we saw, is Jesus, God and man, divinity, humanity, everything. He's the source, he's the summit, the alpha, the very beginning, the omega, the very end, and everything in between. For those who do not know the Greek alphabet, omega, the letter O, is the last letter in the alphabet. That's why that's used in Revelation. So it'd be like A to Z. Everything in the dictionary is covered by Jesus. And the amazing, astonishing, tremendous, uh, terrible fact is uh, he is here among us, right there. Everything the church does or says or is flows from what we have here tonight on the altar. Everything. The structure of churches, that the altar's at the center, even adoration, you probably know how that originated. It took about <clears throat> 1,200 years to get to the point of doing what we're doing tonight. Out of reverence, it was always clear from the beginning of the church, Mass was usually celebrated only once in the week. It was Sunday by the bishop. They were small communities too, so if there were other priests Everybody would concelebrate. That's why after Vatican II, that came back. I mean, that is what was done. Uh, they would not celebrate weekday mass. That's why in many Orthodox churches, they still do not have weekday masses. That's a very Catholic thing. Um, and they would have a little drawer. So the priest would consecrate the bread and wine, and they would keep bread and wine, the forms, the body and blood of Christ, to distribute, that did not happen right away either. At first, it was such a sacred thing. I mean, Jesus, God, is coming among us. Who are we to keep him here? So you consumed reverently, and then you longed for the next meeting, which was next Sunday. And from that initial practice came everything that we have had through the history of the church. And it's developed over time, and there have been deviations as well. And there have been beautiful insights that went deeper and deeper into this mystery. And it's not over. So eventually they said, okay, what about the sick? They can't come, and this means so much to us. It's our life. Are we allowed to deprive the sick of this, even though they can't be among us in community for the great mystery that makes sense of everything in our lives? And remember, most of those people, many of them became martyrs. You don't become a martyr for nothing. They love Jesus a lot and were willing to die to stay faithful to him. So they said, if somebody's sick, um, would Jesus want us to not give them communion? It took a while, and they said, no. So they would save some of the hosts. They would consecrate extra, and they would take the body and blood of Christ to the sick, one of the priests. So eventually, they developed a little drawer. Many Orthodox churches still have, like, in the middle of the altar, they have this little drawer. It has no lock. You don't need a lock, because after the Mass, they take Jesus, bring him to the sick, and that's it for another week. Why reverence? I mean, Jesus is not a toy. He's not a commodity. He's not an iPhone. You don't just take him out when you need him. Jesus is not a pill for my problems. He is the Lord. Last night I mentioned it, and I think it is important. As a, as a moment in history, our moment in history is not good at reverence. Reverence for authority in general, and that's not just America, but you people are especially good at your independence. <clears throat> Respect for authority is rooted in the Ten Commandments. Because authority is a sign of God's presence among us in concrete forms that he desires. <clears throat> For instance, the family. God had the idea of parents. It was not our idea. And that is the basic cell of the society. So reverence is not the strong point of our time. And we are children of our time, even the most reverent among us, so we should just be aware of that. Fear of the Lord is the gift of the Holy Spirit that irreverent people need. A healthy sense of trembling in front of the mystery. 
That's why it took 1,200 years to get something like adoration going. Because, like, who are we to keep him captive? And it was nourished by biblical meditation. Well, he liked small children, and he liked being among the people, and he did become man. How deep can we go in that mystery of, if Jesus became man, how much contact with us can he tolerate? Slowly, slowly, there was a leap, basically. Then they kept only the body of Christ. And in old churches in Europe, you see it. It's like a cage, actually. So it's near the altar because Catholics were a little more generous. They didn't just keep minimum hosts. Thank you. Wow. A cup of cold water. A bottle does not count, but it's close. just so he gets his brownie points. Thank you, deacon. Now that is service, by the way. Very good. Diaconia, excellent. You passed the test. So they have these little cages made of stone, and that's where they kept the host. And then eventually the idea came, how long can we keep them? And so the, that's what theologians do. They figure out how long is Jesus still there. They said, until the bread form disappears, Jesus is still there. That's why they did not keep, generally, the sacred form of wine, blood, because it gets bad very soon. In Italy, I mean, you leave wine out for a while. What am I saying? In Louisiana, you leave anything out for a while, it is gone. <laughs> if it doesn't rust, it decays. So it was based on that mix between our concrete reality the reverence for the Lord, and the deep desire to know how deep is he willing to go with us? How far along the journey is he willing to come? And it was really St. Francis about his time, St. Francis himself, big breakthrough. He was the one who took the little baby at Christmas, a real live baby, and put him in front of everybody and said, this is how our Lord came to us. Rub your nose in this. This is incarnational, a baby who has no real control, who does not obey the rules. Jesus became a baby that is a... And therefore, from that meditation on how much of a man Jesus became, um, 100 years later, St. Thomas Aquinas writes hymns to the Eucharist. The feast of the body and blood of Christ is instituted. And Jesus was kept in the tabernacle and adored, and monstrances came into being. Monstrance means showcase. It's where you could show Jesus to the people. Not because they didn't believe he was in the tabernacle. The tabernacle had a lock then. Why? Because you're keeping him there all the time. It's not just a drawer where you take the hosts out after the mass, distribute them, and it's over. The church, worshiping the Lord, who is God, slowly began to worship the Lord, who is man. Otherwise, theology is not correct. And that immense mystery, true God and true man, how do we hold them together? Only if at the very center of the mysteries, I said, like a St. Therese of Lisieux, where you just are in God's arms and say, God, you did this, I accept it, it's so beautiful and mysterious, I am in awe. But trying to figure out the different aspects, it takes a while to find, not the balance, but how do we go deeper into this mystery? Rediscovering it every generation. This is God. But with St. Francis especially, this is man. And that's when they started to have those crucifixes that look like a bloody corpse, which developed until the Baroque period in Spain where they have very bloody corpses in the churches, and children can see them. Imagine that. Children are allowed to see Jesus as he was. And that inspires another kind of trembling and awe. There's the trembling and awe that comes before thinking, you know, who am I to stand in the presence of the living God? All the angels and the saints sing, holy, 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 in eternity. I sometimes surface from my petty concerns to sing with them in the Mass. And I sink back to the level that I'm comfortable with. It's very hard for us here on earth to maintain the reverence due God. But it's also very difficult for us to maintain the trembling and wonder with the fact that Jesus became man, and not just man, but he went to the very, very, very depths of being a human being, 
deeper than we will ever penetrate so that none of us can say he does not care about me or my world or my family. By becoming man, all those excuses are gone. And again, we can sink to the level, as we do with our reverence for God, we can sink to the level of not really caring, and then we start to get into these little mind games, like, does God really know I'm here? I pray so hard, Father Michael, and he doesn't seem to hear me. Well, do not, that is, first of all, it's a dead end. Secondly, it's diabolical, if dead end is not enough for you. Like, dead end for me is annoying. I would not go down a dead end if I had it on my Google Maps. I would just turn around. But if you really insist on doing that, well, it's diabolical. Satanic? It is. You're rejecting a key part of our belief as Catholics. The Eucharist is simple. Jesus is present God and man. So let's meditate tonight on Jesus is true man. And how he did it, there are many things that can come from this. It shoots in all directions. But Jesus is the model of a human being, what a human being can be, should be, and must be in a broken world. And many, many, many of those little games we play with ourselves, the pity parties we hold, the fantasies that we construct, the jealousy, the envy, the bitterness, and all the capital sins could be avoided if we would just stay in that place of true God, reverence, who am I to be here? I am not worthy. The lamb is worthy. And awe, the humility of Jesus Christ. To become true man is not a prideful thing. We are talking God. Did God need to become man? There have been heresies over the ages that said, of course he did. No, he did not. God wanted to become man. Why? To save us. Could he have done it in another way? Again, there have been heresies on this one. Heresy is just taking one truth and squeezing it hard and forgetting about all the other truths that exist. Clinging to one truth like my lifesaver and forgetting that might help you. That's a good truth. But there are so many other truths that are equally true. And by clinging to one and dumping the others, that's called heresy. Heretics are usually very good people, very sincere believers, who have found solace in one thing and dump everything else. And that's why the church has to keep correcting like good mother, saying, there's way more going on than is helpful for you. So be humble. Jesus is true God and true man. And if it helps you more to be reverent and maybe dive into the mystery of what does it mean to tremble before God who loves me, well, don't forget the others, you know, true man. Some people need that much more because they're going through difficult times and they need to know Jesus knows where they are and has reached down below where they are to lift them up to him. Heresy is a problem of pride, saying the truths that I find helpful are the only ones that matter. And how do we ensure we never fall into those weird dead ends? Uh, well, adoration is a good place to start. Because if you understand this, not understand, if you can tolerate being in the presence of the living God more than three seconds, uh, you will be purified of your pride. If you ask Jesus in the Eucharist, make my heart more like yours, uh, he will do that, and you cannot be proud. And you will let go of your preferences and start sinking into his preferences. And even if you don't need a certain truth today, um, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's still true. <laughs> I think sometimes we try to escape these huge tensions of our faith because we want the simple life. We don't want life. We want simple. We say, I would just like things to be simple and clear. We don't want life. Life is simple and clear and complex and beautiful and awesome and creative. It's everything God made. Who told us that we deserve to have it simple? 
who told us that life is supposed to be like a computer program with a limited amount of outcomes and a clear way to win. Figure out the system, play it right, and you will be prosperous. There are preachers in this country who talk of the prosperity gospel, and they mean it pretty well like that. Life is a game, learn the rules, play the odds, and you're likely to come out a winner from the casino called life. Who told you that that is life? Have you never seen a baby? Babies are, are babies simple? I guess so. They, they're pretty simple in their needs. They're pretty simple in their desires. Uh, I'm not a mother, but mothers seem to understand what each little scream means. I do not. Love makes it simple for the mother to know what was that cry. Was that for food, for shelter, to go to the bathroom? Love makes communication possible. So is that simple? Yeah, life should be as simple as a child. And that's why Jesus became man. He was an embryo. He was conceived. He was in his mother's womb for nine months. He was living a hidden life for 30 years. We don't know much about what he was doing for 30 years. He became man in all the grittiness and boring routine of what that means. Why don't we know much about his first 30 years? Because we all know what they were like. Life. He had breakfast, lunch, dinner, and sometimes he didn't. He cleaned his room. Today I was celebrating the Mass. I get to do that. This is a great week. I love your parish. I got to celebrate Mass. And they were having uh, from the school the uh, awards for excellence in virtue. And the principal made a very beautiful comment. Um, he said, we don't know much about the first years of Christ, but he was growing in wisdom and knowledge. He was doing something, but it was about as exciting as our life. This is why I would caution you. If you're in front of the Eucharist, I don't have to tell you, but I fear sometimes we don't translate well. Um, life is about as exciting as a child. It's not always drama but it's very rarely predictable. If that's a problem for you, then maybe Jesus wants to touch your heart tonight and invite you to live. And to expect from life what life is supposed to be. The fullness of life is not excitement. The fullness of life is being where you're supposed to be, with the people you're supposed to be, serving those God calls you to serve today, tomorrow, in eternity. And because we're so hard-hearted, back to the question I put, did God have to become man to save us? No. But since he did it, we're allowed very reverently to figure out why did he do that? Because there are better ways I'm sure you have many good suggestions on how you would have saved the world, and I would suggest most of your suggestions will cost you nothing. See, and that's the deep root of our brokenness. We love solutions that are, we say, easy. We don't mean easy. We mean that leave us alone in whatever little fantasy world we enjoy living in. And that's why we have the Eucharist here to remind us um, what an evil thing it is to glorify the comfort zone. Why did God become man? He did not have to. But I've read many books on these questions. I think the best answers are going in the direction of, we don't know why, but we can learn an awful lot. If God said, this is the way I'm going to save them, he wanted to show us many things by doing it this way. It was not for God that he became man. It was for us. It was not for God that he left Jesus among us in the form 
of the Eucharist. You know who it's for? For us. So that we never forget that he became one of us. In the boring routine of life, in the pain, the suffering, the darkness, the misunderstandings, the normal frictions that come with this thing we call life. So we don't start feeling sorry for ourselves way before martyrdom. And in fact, on the day of our martyrdom, we don't even think of feeling sorry for ourselves because this is what we were made for. So tonight we'll meditate a little on Jesus, true man, true human being, true brother of us all. And the word true is a good one. If you want to know what it means to be a human being that's fully alive, well, <laughs> welcome. Jesus knows you. I'm just trying to introduce you to him. Again, the dating service goes on. Yesterday I introduced you to Jesus who is God. The angels and saints, they bow down and worship, and we yawn and ignore and chatter in front of him and don't show him actually too much reverence. He is a good friend, and I mentioned yesterday, visit is a powerful word. He wants us to visit him, but he wants us to visit him, God. And he also wants us to spend time with him, human. So on this handout tonight, um, I just put a few texts. And if we look at all the texts of the church, and even of the of the Holy Mass, um, they all go over and over back to the same point. At the core of Jesus being human, there is the incarnation, but there's also what sums up his life, the meaning of what he did for us, why he entered into our history in such a dramatic way and such a simple way. It was all focused on the passion and resurrection of our Lord. This is the product of years, like 2,000 years of meditation on the mystery, and always it goes back to, if we want to summarize the Jesus we have here, it's the Jesus who did miracles. On Sunday I said, Bartimaeus cries out, Lord, I'd like to see. And Jesus answers him, be healed. That is the same Jesus here. Why doesn't it say in all the church documents um, for... The Eucharist is a memorial of Christ's healing ministry. Because underneath the healing ministry is always, he came so that we would be free of sin and death. And all the things he did leading up to those sacred days of the Holy Triduum were ramping up to that. And everything that came afterwards flows from that. So if you want to summarize Jesus' being human, actually... It's deeply linked to his suffering to break the power of sin and death. At the heart, heart, heart. So if you want to meditate on what does it mean to be human and you want a life without suffering, you are setting a problem that cannot be solved. If you come to Jesus, and okay, I'll be honest, I do this too. It's not like I'm judging anybody, but we do it and it's terrible. We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a problem. Solve it. And get lightly annoyed if he doesn't do it instantly and get extremely angry if it doesn't come within 48 hours. Because we're children of Amazon. I remember a time when a package came two weeks after you ordered it. It was like, wow, that was quick. Beware, we are children of our time. We have learned, and it was almost, it's almost like the Tower of Babel. We were almost getting to prime users, getting service same day anywhere in the country. And everybody's thinking, we have the promised land, we have paradise, I don't need to pray. I can get anything I want within 24 hours. And then supply chain problems. I'm not saying that that was God intervening and wrecking our beautiful plans. <laughs> But I, I find it lightly amusing. Everybody's getting all bent out of shape, and I'm saying, thank you, God. Maybe people will be a little more patient with everything else, like you, for instance. 
God, my Amazon package can get here in 24 hours, and your answers take a little longer. As if that's a problem. It should be the other way around. God, your rhythms are the rhythms of life. Why am I getting more and more obsessed with getting it yesterday? Why at work am I getting stressed out and staying up all night working on projects as if that was about the key points of my life? I mean, hello. Every time we go to the Eucharist, it resets us to focus on the essentials. And there is nothing about the Eucharist that speaks of rapidity or speed. Tonight, what has he done? Well, he's been telling me certain things, sorry. But um, other than that, whispering in my ear, you're saying, would you stop talking? Thank you. Uh, What has been dramatic about this? Very little. What is more important, what I want or what he models through the Eucharist? You want to be a true human being, living life to the full, much closer to this than to any CGI fantasy that you've been watching lately. Much closer to this pace of life than to the pace that is fed us every day, not because technology is evil, just because the possibilities are there and we use them as we desire. We love the frenetic pace. It makes us feel like we're worth something because we don't find our worth with him just being where we're supposed to be. We need to prove our worth and feel our worth and ping things and get a bounce back so we feel that we're alive. And there are bizarre forms of that. Some people have to scar their own bodies to feel that they're alive. They have to manipulate their faces. And Botox is okay, but if your self-worth is more there than just being who you are and projecting the beauty that God has planted in you, what is going on? Every generation has its dangers, and ours is definitely in the direction of showing off going to the surface, getting the speed up to the highest. I mean, it's great to have fast internet connections, but is that really helping us to live life? Maybe. But why do we get sucked into that turmoil and that whirlwind of activity? Uh, Because we want to. I would beg you to do your adoration well and recognize at least that when you complain about the frenetic pace of your life, it's because you love it. So make a choice. Who forces you to live at high speed intensity 24-7? Is it a law in this country? I did not get the memo. There are some terrible laws in your country and in my country, but That is not a law. You must live at a pace that will drive you to heart attack or suicide. And we know better. And we are allowed to choose every Sunday the pace of God. God shows us. He became true man so we would not follow these fantasy ideas of what makes life worthwhile and fulfilling and worth living. And it always goes back to the passion, death, and resurrection. The core, core, core of being human is somewhere in there. And what is the meaning of that? He did it for us. If you want to unpack that core of Jesus being man, it is the the text I quoted as a Catholic yesterday, not really knowing which one it was. I knew there was a two and a four in it. Philippians 2, 4 to 11. You can read the whole letter if you dare. I know we don't read the Bible, but it's not that long. It's like about two pages long. Uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians. They were a good church. They actually got it. They didn't have major problems, but they bickered once in a while. And he writes, please, just remember, follow the example of Christ, who emptied himself. Who emptied himself. At the core of Jesus being human and living life to the full is the fact that every second of his life, he poured himself out for others. And we translate that as passion, death, and resurrection. 
Jesus Christ fulfilled his life mission by pouring himself out for others. One of the best summaries, I will not play the song tonight because some of you would not understand how profound it is, but I like Toby Mack, among many other artists, but he has a song called um, This Is What It Feels Like, and it's written, he had spent a year taking care of his dying father, and his children were going off the rails, and he wrote a song called This Is What It Feels Like. It's about love. Pour it out, used up, still giving, stretching me out to the end of my limits. This is what love feels like. And it's not a bitter song, it's a rejoicing song. Thank you, Lord, for letting me live and love as you did. This is what love feels like. The passion, death, and resurrection is the code for, you want to figure out what Jesus did, what he said, what was the important part of his life? Read the Gospels. Everything you need to understand is there. But if you need the key of interpretation, passion, death, resurrection, and if you need the key for that, Philippians 2, 4 to 11. Kenosis. He poured himself out. He emptied himself. He was like a vessel, and everything he had in him was poured out for others. Yesterday I mentioned the word visit as a powerful word that you understand very well from your culture. Well, you also have the pelican. The pelican in your flag and the pelican in your state, whatever it is, emblem. The pelican is the symbol that the church used for about 500 years to sum up everything about the passion, death, and resurrection. So therefore, it's a symbol of the Eucharist, obviously. There was a book written by some Roman um, naturalist. Uh, it has some good information on animals like mice and cats, uh, but he had hearsay information on other animals. So in that book, actually, he has an article on unicorns. This is why all the things about unicorns that came through medieval literature and last up to this day with terrible-looking little ponies that have rainbows on them. Uh, unicorns, it's because of a book, I think it was written before Christ. Um, they had seen rhinoceros, obviously, in Africa, and it became a unicorn, a pretty little horse. Well, unicorn, we've domesticated them too. We domesticated Christ. We love domesticating animals. Okay, unicorns were the fiercest they said, one of the fiercest animals that we know of, stay far away from them because they will rip you apart. The only thing that could catch a unicorn was actually a young girl who was pure. And what, so if you wanted to catch a unicorn, the only thing that would calm a unicorn and make it manageable was a young girl who was pure would go out into the field and the thing would run at it, it looked like she was going to die, and then would lay its head in her lap and became My Little Pony. I won't tell you how you say that in Latin, but that's what it did. The only thing that could tame... Unicorns are fierce. We have domesticated them because we don't know unicorns. We don't know real uh, awe or amazement anymore. Unicorns are terrible animals. The only thing that could calm them... So that was used by the early Christians. They said, okay, unicorns, that's a good symbol for the incarnation. Because there was a pure young girl called Mary, and that was the only thing that could tame the tremendous God who we don't control and bring him into our world. So if you see unicorns in Middle Age symbolism in churches as well, it's the symbol of the incarnation. The only thing that could bring God down and make him less than a very angry God was a pure young girl who just sat there and could have died from the experience. Encountering the holy for the Jews was like the moment of your death. If God appeared to you, that's why all the prophets say, uh-oh, I'm going to die. And Mary said, hi. She was so innocent and pure, she didn't see the danger of this kind of encounter. She just thought, this is great. I've been talking to him every day in prayer. There you are. Here I am. So what are we doing today? And it really was, it's like more like My Little Pony than unicorn, fierce animal that gores you with the horn and rips you apart. 
But in that book, there's another animal they describe, the pelican, and it says, we have witnessed that pelicans, when there are no fish available, will rip their breasts apart to feed their young. So they'll take their big beaks, dig into their breasts, and feed the young their own flesh and blood so that they survive even if I die. Now it seems, just as with the unicorn, it was a mistake. Um, it's sort of fish guts were on pelicans, so they often had red uh, breasts. There are no known cases of pelicans actually doing what that book said they did, but it did not matter. The church fathers took it and said, that's like the Eucharist. So from then on, the pelican became the symbol of it. And your forefathers in this state, when they came here and saw the pelicans, saw it as a providential sign. They said, Jesus is with us. They didn't just see a big bird that floats over the water, looks very strange when he's sitting still, way out of proportion, just like Jesus. It's bizarre that he would become man, but once he starts flying along, beautiful birds. And they said, that sacrificial thing, that is the core of the core of the core. So they put it in Europe, if you go there, many tabernacles have the pelican with three or four little babies underneath, and there's drops of blood. So if you people don't get it, I have nothing to say. <laughs> the pelican is the core of what Jesus becoming man is. And what is the mystery of the, the pelican? It's, uh, I will rip my own body apart so that you can live. If it's between me and you, you know who wins? You do. That is everything about Jesus becoming man. He did it for that reason. Philippians 2, 4, he became man. Not just that, he became like a slave. Not just that, he died. All of this freely chosen for you. And he didn't just die, he died as a criminal, as a condemned terrorist on the most brutal of torture instruments. Why? Because he's like the pelican. He was ripping himself apart so you could live. Jesus, true God, yes, and true man, that is being a true human being. And I hope that can lead to some good reflections tonight. True man is the man and the woman and the child who is willing to give everything. And if you look for that imprint, you will find it in all the miracles of Jesus. You'll find it in his 30 years of relatively silent existence, doing what we do. What do you do every day? That's about what he did. Jesus probably was not as fascinated with frenetic pacing because he actually knew what life is about. So even if he had an iPhone, he wouldn't have used it much because he was busy with the important things of life. Even if he had a TV, he probably wouldn't have used it much. Why did he come 2,000 years ago? This is my personal theory. Because if he came now, nobody would notice the important things. He would have an iPhone, and you would assume, ah, yeah, and he's using it all the time. No, he has an iPhone because it's handy sometimes. But he's not addicted. Don't project your problems on him. He's, not, he's saving the universe, and what's he up to for 30 years? He's just being human. That gives a tremendous value to everything we do and gives a pretty clear perspective on stuff that does not help us at all. I gave you tonight the seven last words of Jesus um, on that page. It's interesting to see. Luke and John record more of them than the others because John was there. I was thinking, John was there. He heard them live. So the words he records are very sacred. These were words Jesus gave us on the cross um, on Good Friday, I had the honor of preaching here. I went into the seven words a bit. They inspire me very much. But at the core of each of them is the Jesus who's pouring himself out. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they're nailing his hands to the cross, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, does that well. He keeps repeating over and over, Father, forgive them. And not later. As the nail is going through my nerve, in my wrist, I am saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not after I've gone to therapy. 
and a few confessions and confess that I'm obsessed by this terrible thing I had to go through, and then maybe 50 years later on my deathbed I say, oh, I can finally forgive. That's us. The Jesus who pours himself out does it in real time, not after he's got his vendetta, then he confesses that too. As he's being hurt, he's saying, Father, forgive them. And broken as he is, every word costs a few breaths. On the cross, you're standing on a nail that's through your ankles. Every time you have a choice, you can breathe and suffer or not breathe and suffer. And your body instinctively will pull you up. So you draw up your weight on your arms, which are hanging on nails, through the nerves. Every time you do that, you get a tremendous pain so that you can breathe. Every time he spoke a word, it was a decision. All of these words are sacred. They're sacred decisions of God to tell us, because again, he's pouring himself out. He's pouring out the words that we need to hear so we'll never forget what is very, very important. It seems that Jesus thinks forgiveness is not just optional. Forgiveness in real time. Today you will be with me in paradise. Who does he say this to? Um, basically a terrorist, a man who's killed many, many people. Good thief is what we say for children. I apologize to the children among us tonight, but it is not a good thief. It's like the good assassin. It'd be like Al-Qaeda member. This guy is not just bad. You do not want him as your neighbor. You don't want him in your town. You don't want him anywhere near you. And this is the man who says in the last second of his life, I'm not worthy. You are so right you are not worthy but remember me. And Jesus says, you, the only person he promises this to, you'll be within my kingdom today. That word is powerful, and he had to say it because we would have domesticated that one too, down to, you have to forgive people who really repent and come crawling to you, and they pay you a lot, and then maybe you'll give the grace of your kind forgiveness. Yeah, right. You don't know Jesus. And we have domesticated him in the way we forgive, and the people we forgive, we decide who is worthy of our mercy. Jesus decides, and he shows us, he decides for the scum of the earth. So none of us can pretend we're charitable until we've done it too. Woman, behold your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not scared to be vulnerable and say, I have no idea what's going on. And this word, I often meditate. He's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am sure the Father whispers in his ear, I'm here. Because at the end, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There's been some dialogue going on there. The Father has spoken to him and said, I have your back. My favorite image of the crucified one is God the Father supporting the weight of the cross and having his hands over the wounds of Christ he is carrying more weight than Christ. Christ is suffering and dying. The Father is not watching with glee. He is saying, I am here. Why can't you see me, son? Because I'm carrying you and your weight. Jesus learned how to pour himself out from his Father. If you're a father, try that as a model for what is a good father. Don't read a psychology book. A father is willing to bear the weight of the cross of his child and the child himself. Jesus speaks of going two miles when they ask for one. That's because he talked to the Father every day. That's the law of life. So let's pray with Jesus tonight. Whatever direction it takes us, Jesus is true man. That means, do I want to live a fully human life? The only model that's worth something is here with us tonight. That's as exciting as it gets. Maybe it's not about excitement. Maybe it's about authenticity. Maybe about, about meaning, purpose, love. Maybe, maybe if we stop domesticating Jesus, it's about pouring ourselves out. Poured out, used up, still giving stretching me out to the end of my limits, this is what love feels like. Tonight I wanted to play, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Because the answer is yes and no. And you can figure out what your answer is. Yes, I was there. 
this is the crucifixion. This is the crucified one. Of course I was there, and that makes me tremble that he would even want to reveal his heart to me. But no, I was not there because he invited me to forgive my brother or my sister or my aunt or my uncle or my child or my dad or my mom for something heinous that they did to me. And I was not there because I don't care about his law of pouring yourself out. I want to survive. So no, I wasn't there. And I repent that deeply. And Jesus, I promise you tonight, I will be there with you. If that's all I do with my life, that's a life well spent. I don't want to run away anymore from the only thing that matters. Where can I pour myself out today? Whom can I forgive tonight? Whom will I call tomorrow and finally reach out? They should have reached out. Yes. Okay. What would Jesus say? What would this Jesus do in your situation? That's the only thing that matters. There are two or three verses in this uh, version, that's why I like it, where it's just the girl is singing a note. And you can plug in your verse there. Were you there? Were you there when I asked you to forgive? Were you there when I asked you to pour yourself out in a little or a tremendously big way? Sometimes it causes me to tremble when I think how lacking in generosity I am. My Lord and my God, forgive me.
全部。